Let's pray. Father, we thank you that you have given us everything we need, including your good commands, by which we give you our thanks. So with the psalmist, we ask, teach us, O Lord, to follow your decrees, then we will keep them to the end. Give us understanding, and we will keep your law and obey it with all our heart. As we consider your word, enable us to give back to you your word in prayer, in praise, in our daily lives. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. 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 Think, if you will, of all the times when you were on the road, perhaps this past uh, Friday, in a snowstorm or a heavy spring rain, perhaps on a trip. The roads get slick. You can't see. Everyone in the car gets tense, white-knuckle driving. You want to get to your destination quickly. You start thinking of shortcuts and alternatives. You're aware of the danger. You feel pressed. You have a sense of urgency. It almost feels like an emergency. How do you respond to situations of danger or hardship where there's some pressure upon you, where there's some urgent need? How do you react to storms in your family or at work or in other relationships? How do you behave in a crisis? How do you respond to financial hardships, health problems, difficulties with your work or studies, your desires or fears? How do you deal with the trials of everyday life, the situations in which we all find ourselves from time to time? What do you do when your world seems to be falling apart around you? What do you do when Satan shoots his fiery darts at you? In our text here, in Luke 8, verses 22 to 25, we see that the, the disciples are faced with just such a situation. For them, it's not a slick road, it's a stormy sea. But they're faced with a situation of danger. Let's take a look at the text and see just what took place. First, we notice in verse 23 that as they sailed, Jesus fell asleep. And a squall or a windstorm came down on the lake so that the boat was being swamped. They were filling with water. And they were in jeopardy. As the NIV translates it, they were in great danger. That's what it means. Now notice, it's real danger. They didn't just 
think they were in danger. Luke makes his inspired comment. They were in great danger. It's quite common on the Lake of Galilee for storms to arise quite suddenly. The Lake of Galilee is below sea level. It's cut down into a valley and rising up on its sides are relatively high mountains. These mountains are cut with gorges that run down to the lake. So cold air comes down from the mountains through these gorges like a downhill skier on an Olympic bobsled run, and it creates great hurricane force winds on the lake. Of course, if you're out there in a boat, it will be dangerous. The disciples, as fishermen, would be more familiar with this than we are with snow squalls or thunderstorms <coughs> striking us on the road. But they got caught in this strong storm, and the boat filled with water. In the midst of it all, Jesus was sleeping. He must have been pretty tired. It appears that Jesus fell asleep after a long day of teaching and the crowds pressing upon him and healing people and so on. So he was probably exhausted. We see Jesus' humanity. He was really a man. He fell asleep in the boat. The disciples, on the other hand, were by no means asleep. The storm came up and they were wide awake. They were scared. So they woke Jesus up with a cry. In Mark's account of this incident, there's even a tone of rebuke. Don't you care about us? But here, it's, Master, Master, we're going to drown. Literally, they said, Master, Master, we are perishing. We're being destroyed. We're being killed. We're dying. Wake up. Do something. They woke him up. And Jesus responded. He arose and rebuked the wind and the raging of the water. Now this word rebuke here has caused some discussion among the commentators. Some want to say that actually all Jesus really did was to calm the disciples that he didn't do anything at all to the storm. But if we believe what the scriptures say about Jesus, there's no reason not to believe what they say about this particular incident, that he actually did calm the waters. But how do we take this word rebuke? That he rebuked the wind and the raging of the water. What does it mean for Jesus to rebuke the storm. Some commentators say that there must have been some evil spirit, some demonic activity that was causing this storm, and that Jesus rebuked the demon. But in fact, 
The text itself says nothing at all about any evil spirit or any demon activity. It seems that it's a common occurrence on the lake. The thrust of the word for rebuke here means that Jesus asserted his authority over the winds and the raging waters. He commanded and said words like, be still, be quiet, stop your raging. He asserted his authority. Now the remainder of the text is basically two questions that Luke records. Jesus asks the disciples one of the questions, where is your faith? The disciples ask one another the other question, who can this be? Who is this? These are questions which we need to answer. The first question is, where is your faith? Or as Luke might put it, where is your faith? Now before we can answer this question, there are two things that we ought to consider. The first thing we need to consider before we look at this question is that when the New Testament talks about faith, faith or believing usually isn't simply faith that something is true. It includes that. It involves faith that something is true. But usually it means more than that. The words faith and believe are often followed by the Greek word for into. When you believe, when you exercise faith, you believe into someone. You believe in with a direction. You take aim and you direct yourself and you direct your trust, your confidence, in someone. Believing is trusting. It has a focus and a direction. That's one thing to keep in mind. When Jesus asks, where is your faith? He's talking about faith that is directed toward someone. And so Jesus asks the question, where is your faith? Rather than, what is your faith? Not what do you believe, whom do you believe? The issue he's raising is not what, but whom. The second thing we need to consider before we look at this question is that when Jesus asks this question, there is an implied rebuke involved. It's not an offhand, casual question. Oh, hey guys, uh, come on now. Where's your faith? Mm. He's rebuking them. Mm. Where is your faith? The implication is that their faith is not where it ought to be. The question that Jesus asks carries the idea, why are you afraid? Mm. You ought not to be if your faith were properly placed and being exercised as it ought to be, you would not be afraid. You wouldn't be terrified. Terror comes from misplaced faith. 
So where is your faith? What are the options? In this kind of a situation, you might have faith in yourself. A lot of people do. You might be horrified at the thought that you had placed your faith, your confidence, your trust in yourself in such a situation. Nevertheless, we all do it. It's natural to us as sinners. It may be that the general thrust of your conscious faith is not in yourself, but there are times, there are those occasions in situations like this, the slick road, the stormy sea, when you place your, your faith in yourself. We trust our skills. We trust our feelings, our instincts, our knowledge. We follow our methods, the habits we've adopted for dealing with stress. We assert our authority to try to make our ways possible. We believe that we're supposed to be able to handle things. We believe that we're supposed to know what's coming. We believe that nothing in the world should bother us, distress us, disturb us from being happy. That's trusting yourself. When you do that, when you place your faith in yourself and you're faced with the slick roads and the stormy seas, overwhelming difficulties over which you have no control, you have to end up in despair. I can't do anything. If my faith is in me, and I can't do anything, then where do I go? I have no hope. I'm faced with terror. There's no help to come. Another possibility is that your faith might be in what we might call circumstantial forces. Your faith might be in the situation itself and in the things that bring it about, as though the situation were itself some kind of being, some kind of force, a thing isolated from anything else that exists on its own, that has power of its own. Effectively, your faith is in that circumstance, that force. When you say, I can't do anything in the face of it. I have no confidence in myself with respect to it. It's greater than anything else or anyone else. Nobody can stop this storm. No one controls the weather in my life. There's nothing that anyone can do. As a counselor, people will sometimes come to me and basically say, here's the mess I'm in. I have all these terrible things going on in my life. No one can help me. You can't help me. I just have to escape life. Tell me how. Tell me what to do. Those people are really asking me to confirm their faith in their circumstances. So again, you meet terror, despair, because you have no, no appeal. It really, really boils down to a faith in what the Greek philosophers would have called chaos. 
In such thinking, there is no rule over the forces of nature and over the winds of chance or fortune. You've resigned yourself that there are all sorts of other powers over which there is no control, and therefore, in effect, you've placed your trust, your faith, in those forces. When Jesus asks, where is your faith? He's saying, you're terror-struck. You're trusting yourself or you're trusting the storm. Your faith is in one of those two places. Where is your faith? But where should your faith be? Well, of course, it ought to be in Jesus. Right? We all know that's coming. He's just demonstrated that by asserting his authority over the wind and raging waters. But that gives rise to the question in the disciples' minds, and it ought to give rise to the question in our minds, who is Jesus? Who is this? At first glance, when you read the last part of verse 25, it sounds almost comical. In fear and amazement, they asked one another, Who is this? He commands even the winds and the water, and they obey him. You know, who is this guy? Who was that masked man? It sounds a little bit like that. But if you think about it, it's more than that. Because they asked the question with fear and amazement. Mm. Mm. Who is this? Mm -hmm. Well, Jesus has shown here that he is the creator. Hallelujah. It may be that Luke had Psalm 89 in mind, like the portion that we read earlier. In Psalm 89, verse 9, the psalmist says, You rule over the surging sea, when its waves mount up, you still win. Now, about whom is the psalmist talking? To whom is he speaking? In verses 11 and 12, he says, The heavens are yours, and yours also the earth. You founded the world and all that is in it. You created the north and the south. It's God, the creator, who rules over the surging sea, who stills the waves. God, the Son of God. In this same psalm, in verse 25, God speaks of David. I will set his hand over the sea, his right hand over the rivers. He will call out to me, you are my father. And in verse 27, I will also appoint him my firstborn. Wow. This is the Son of God, Amen. Jesus, David's greater Son. It's this recognition that Jesus is God, the Son of God, that causes the disciples to respond in fear. That fear is the fear of worship. It's awe. It's the response that you see 
all through the Bible that people give when they know that they're in the presence of God. Yes. It's that kind of fear. Hit your knees. Mm -hmm. Fall on your face. Mm -hmm. But Jesus is not only the creator. He's also the second Adam. You remember that Adam was created in the image of God and he was given dominion over the earth and all that dwells in it. If he had not fallen, Adam would have been able to command the seas. He would have been able to rule over the sea. He would have been able to rebuke the storm and the raging waves, and they'd have been stilled and calm. Jesus is the one who has regained actual dominion over the earth for mankind. He's the second Adam. He's the head of the new race. He is the son of man, as he's called so often in Luke. He's not only the son of God, but he is also the son of man. Of course, it's because of the fall, because of sin, that man does not exercise that dominion over the earth as he ought. So the disciples realize, they recognize in Jesus the fulfillment of the promise of God in Genesis 3, that the curse should be lifted when the offspring of the woman would come. They recognize in Jesus that one, that Son of Man. Consequently, they're amazed. They marvel at what Jesus has done. Now this amazement, this marveling, is something we experience too seldom ourselves. Generally, if someone did uh, something like this in front of us, we're so used to, you know, TV and movies and all the illusions and computer-generated special effects and magicians' tricks and all sorts of gimmicks that we'd be unimpressed. We might be like a little boy watching a magician saying, Oh, wow! But there's more than that here. Jesus was no mere magician. And the disciples didn't think of him that way. And there ought to be more than an oh wow about our reactions, our responses to what Jesus has done. We need to consider more often and more intently the nature of what Christ has done in miracles like this as well as other mighty deeds. We need to consider the things which gain him the name Redeemer. Mm. Jesus also shows himself in this passage to be the Redeemer. In Psalm 89, we read of the one who rules over the surging sea, who stills the waves when they mount up, when we read verse 3, where the psalmist declares that God has made a covenant with his chosen one. He has sworn to David to establish his line forever, to make his throne firm 
through all generations. And again, in verses 27 to 29 of Psalm 89, we see that the coming one is to be the most exalted of the kings of the earth. He is the one whose covenant will never fail, whose line and throne will endure forever. Jesus is the Redeemer, the Covenant Lord, the Covenant Lord. Psalm 106, verse 9 says, He rebuked the Red Sea, and it dried up. He led them through the depths as through a desert. It was God, as the Covenant Lord, the Redeemer of Israel, who rebuked the Red Sea. As Lord of the Covenant, the Covenant Lord of His Covenant people, Jesus, the Redeemer, is Lord of the present. By virtue of His death on the cross, His resurrection to life, His ascension to the right hand of the Father, He rules. He's the Lord of His people. He rules now. Here. We don't know that by sight. We know it by faith. But by faith, we are certain of His presence. And therefore, we trust Him to care for us. Here and now, in stormy seas, on slippery roads, in hard times, in all the difficulties and tense times of life. He's also Lord of the future. Jesus planned the disciples' journey across the lake, and Jesus knew that the storm was coming. He's planned your journeys across your lakes. He's planned your trips through thunderstorms. Jesus, knowing that, fell asleep. He didn't sleep because he didn't know about the storms so that he could sleep easy in ignorance. He fell asleep because he knew what was coming and he knew how he would handle it. He knew what he would do. And so you can sleep. You can rest. You can take it easy because you know that Jesus knows. Because he's also Lord of the past. He will bring good out of evil. He will bring victory in trouble. He may not bring victory and good in the way we expect. He may allow shipwreck. But he'll provide land to reach by swimming or by driftwood or by the belly of a great fish. He may bring us home through the storm, or he may provide shelter on the way in a motel or someone's home. He may bring relief from pressing, trying circumstances, or he may give endurance to see them through. Whatever you have been through, he is able to use it for your good and the good of others who love him 
and are called according to his purpose. Yeah. Including people that you've never met, that you don't know, that don't know you. The reason that he is able to do so is that he is the shelter in the storm. He is the calm eye in the center of the hurricanes of your life. He is the safety line thrown to you in the raging rapids of the Whitewater River of life. He is the ark in the flood, even if he looks like driftwood in your flood. He is the protection in the fiery furnace, even if you feel and see the flames around you. He is the shade tree in the heat of a Middle Eastern desert day, even when he feels like understrength sunscreen in the hot spots of your life. He is the rock on the shoreline against which all the storm-tossed waves in your life break, even though they splash all over you and soak you. They don't carry you out to sea. He is the shield against all the fiery darts of the evil one, so that even though Satan may shoot at you and tempt you, and you may fail, you will not fall. Amen. Jesus will preserve you. Amen. You see, what is the good that Jesus brings out of evil? and the victory that he brings out of trouble, whether the evil and trouble are in the present or in the future or in the past. The good that he brings is not your ease. It is not a trouble-free life. It is not your success. It is not your victory over your circumstances. It is not a demonstration of your authority or control. It is not your experience of pleasure. It is not your development as a redeemer, either of your own life or in someone else's life. Jesus is the only redeemer. The victory that Jesus brings out of trouble in your life is his victory over sin and death. So that you need no longer be a slave to fear, even fear of death. You do not need to worry. The good that he brings out of evil is himself. Jesus is your sure, and certain reward. He is the goal of your faith which is refined in the midst of those trials, those troubles, those storms that hit you on the highway of life. If you believe in Jesus, you can be sure that he is present with you when you are least able to cope with life's trouble. And when you have failed to do what you ought to have done. Amen. He is faithful when you are not. Amen. 
Indeed, he was faithful because he knew he would not be faithful. He knew about your sin long before you committed it. That's why he fulfilled all, all the law for you and died to pay the penalty for your sins and rose again from the dead so that you might live with him. Amen. You do not need to despair. He knew. His answer may surprise you when you appeal to him, but your circumstances will not surprise him. He is in control. And he knows. And so his answer to your appeal is to provide himself. The Redeemer has come. And he will not forsake the one who trusts in him. For by faith, you are united to him as covenant Lord. And at the heart of the covenant promise is the promise, I will be with you. I will not leave you. I will provide for you. He provides himself. Let's pray. Amen. Father, we rejoice in the knowledge that you are never surprised by our circumstances or by our sinful failure to trust and obey you. We confess that we often forget what we know and we fail to respond to the trials of life with faith in you and your Son, the Lord Jesus Christ. Instead, we get caught up in worry and frantic activity to preserve ourselves by our own devices, trusting in false hopes. Forgive us, we ask, for Jesus' sake, who died and rose again and now rules for us, poor, helpless sinners. Enable us and cause us to remember that Jesus is indeed the Creator. God the Son, the second Adam, the Son of Man, our only Redeemer, Lord of the present, the future, and the past. Move us to trust Him more consistently, to rest in Him, and to obey Him in the midst of our trials. Keep us from misplaced faith in false shelters, and keep us safe and secure in the only shelter from all the storms through which you have arranged for us to travel. So keep us from worry as we look to him in whose name we pray, even Jesus. Amen. Amen. Amen.